Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, number 17, for mid-February 2023. Raphael and Julia Cole, Swimming While Black. Welcome to this 17th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. Laurel Hill West, an historic and active cemetery in Bala, Kenwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster for both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East in Philadelphia. It is more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East, has a totally different feel, a strikingly different population. Like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year, now from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. Plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue, or at the Conservatory and Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is to just duck in while you're walking the Kenwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation, take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. This is the 17th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala. It is for mid-February 2023. Raphael Cole was a World War II veteran who, with his wife Julia, fought for civil rights in the 1950s and 60s. Like other blacks who were kept out of purportedly integrated swimming pools, they became founding members of the Nile Swim Club in Yaden a place that welcomed all. Julia was a lifelong swimmer who served as the first black female lifeguard for the city of Philadelphia. Learn what it was like to attempt to swim while black in the United States. First, I want to make a disclaimer. 
I am a 75-year-old white male who has never experienced or even worried about experiencing some of the things that I will talk about today. I grew up in the 1950s in a white suburb south of Chicago where our aqua center was just taken for granted as a place where we would go swim on a hot summer afternoon. And like most other white kids my age, I took swimming lessons. When I had the chance, I swam in lakes and rivers. When I was in Vietnam, one of our few joys was a functioning swimming pool that we found at a base camp which had been set up in an abandoned French villa at Dao Tiang. We learned to avoid the high dive once we figured out it made us an easy target for Viet Cong snipers in the nearby Michelin rubber plantation. I could not tell you the last time that I was in a pool, so I don't know how well the lessons of 65 years ago have stuck. Before I talk about Raphael and Julia Cole, that's C-O-E-L, two black activists who are founding members of the Nile Swim Club in Yaden, I want to tell you some of what they were up against. I'm going to start with three anecdotes that are 90 years apart. Swimming while black, anecdote number one, Dateline Chicago, 1919. During a blistering heat wave, thousands of Chicago's Southsiders flocked to the shores of Lake Michigan. Although not officially segregated, the beach near 29th Street had informally separated into a black section and a white section. A group of African-American youths were diving from a 14-foot-by-9-foot raft that they had constructed. But the raft inadvertently drifted into the white beach area. One white beachgoer was indignant and started throwing rocks at the young men. A 17-year-old named Eugene Williams was struck, fell in the water, and drowned. He was prevented from swimming to shore because of continued rock throwing from the white beach. Black beachgoers were understandably furious and local fistfights expanded into neighborhoods where white mobs attacked innocent black residents. By the time things calmed down about a week later, 38 people were dead, 23 black and 15 white. During this so-called Red Summer of 1919, there were dozens of battles between whites and blacks across the country. An early outbreak of inter-ethnic violence had occurred in Philadelphia in May when a black family moved into a house at 25th and Pine. Two more riots occurred on July 7th and July 31st. Swimming while black, anecdote number two. Dateline, Youngstown, Ohio, 1951. A Little League baseball team had won the city championship and decided to celebrate at the local municipal swimming pool. Coaches, players, parents, and siblings all showed up. One player named Al Bright was black. He was refused admission. He was forced to sit on the lawn outside the fence while everyone else was splashing in the pool. Well, parents of the players and other players pleaded with the lifeguards to allow him into the pool, at least for a few minutes. Well, finally, the supervisor relented. Al could enter the pool so long as everyone else got out 
and he sat inside a rubber raft. As his teammates and other bystanders looked on, a lifeguard pushed him around the pool in his raft one time, constantly reminding him, just don't touch the water. Whatever you do, don't touch the water. Swimming while black, anecdote number three. Dateline Valley Swim Club, Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania, 2009. In the hot Philadelphia summer, 65 children, largely black and Hispanic, from Creative Steps Day Camp in northeast Philadelphia wanted a place to take a dip, but a shrinking city budget had closed their local public pool. They paid about $2,000 to use the pool at the Suburban Valley Club for 90 minutes once a week. And on 29 June, the children, giddy with delight, made their first visit. But no sooner had they jumped in the pool than white parents started pulling their children out, making derogatory racial comments, wondering why children of color were in their pool, and saying they were worried that the black children would harass or harm their kids. The kids from Creative Steps, who until then had little direct exposure to racial animosity, were devastated when they were asked to leave. The club's president was initially apologetic, but before the children could visit a second time, he refunded the payment and canceled the deal, and then he explained to a local television station, quote, there's a lot of concern that a lot of kids would change the complexion and the atmosphere of the club, end quote. For many black people in America and across the African diaspora, water has long been associated with death. In the Marvel Comics Black Panther series, Eric Killmonger's final words are, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew death was better than bondage. According to the Slave Voyages database, nearly two million Africans did not survive this middle passage. Many died of disease or starvation, but many chose to die in the ocean rather than live in enslavement. Swimming pools started as a place for people to bathe. Before the days of indoor plumbing, Philadelphia opened river baths for its populace in 1881. By 1883, there were three of them, two on the Delaware River, one on the Schuylkill. They were all near waterfront slums, and working men were encouraged to use them regardless of their color. These river baths stayed active until pollution made the rivers unusable for bathing and swimming. And then Philadelphia opened one of the first municipal pools in America in June 1884 at the intersection of 12th and Wharton. This swimming bath, as it was called, was very popular among the young immigrant men of the working-class neighborhoods, where few of the dwellings had indoor bathing facilities. The pool was segregated, but not by color. It was segregated by sex. Men and women were not allowed to swim together. Initially, men and boys waited impatiently in the long lines for their turn to plunge into the water. Three days after the pool opened, patients wore thin, 
And when 50 or so men were turned away, they rebelled. They tore down the door to the property. They tore down the fence surrounding the pool. Commissioner of City Property William Dixie threatened to shut down the pool if the attendees didn't behave themselves. Well, things had calmed down by the time the city opened five more municipal pools in various parts of the city. They were primarily for communal bathing, and swimming was not encouraged. Although none were placed in primarily black neighborhoods, blacks, immigrants, and native-born poor whites often bathed together. In 1885, Philadelphia painter William Aikens started work on his famed oil of six nude white men swimming at Dove Lake, an artificial lake at Mill Creek outside of Philadelphia. Its initial title was simply Swimming, but it achieved its final name, The Swimming Hole, in 1917, the year after Aikens' death. Aikens placed himself in the lower right corner of the painting, at the place where you would normally expect to find an artist's signature. Despite Victorian prudery, naked swimming by men was considered normal, even in public spaces. While male public nudity was a nuisance, female nudity was absolutely taboo. In addition to sex, swimming was divided along class lines and initially shunned by the upper and middle classes. Gradually, women started to take to the waters. In an 1858 edition, Godey's Ladies' Book published an instructional article that endorsed swimming as a healthy pastime, even for middle-class women. But this Philadelphia-based magazine did not indiscriminately condone swimming and delineated with whom its readers should swim and where. According to an article edited by Laurel Hill East Sarah Josepha Hale, the most appropriate place to swim for women was at the seashore, among one's social peers, but certainly not in urban lakes and rivers and municipal pools. By the late 1890s, middle and upper class households were getting their own bathrooms and running water. Since women were now taking up swimming, municipal pools set aside two or three days a week just for them. These Spartan concrete squares clocked nearly 1,500 patrons per day. And in the era before chlorine and sand filtration, pools often had to be drained and refilled weekly. What led to segregation by color was integration of the sexes. Once men and women started to swim together, white men became very protective of their women, even though the bathing costumes were relatively modest. Legs were covered to the knees, sleeves to the wrists, high collar. But old fears arose that a black man would not be able to control himself, even if he saw just a little bit of a white woman's flesh and black swimmers were soon banned from municipal swimming pools, partially built with their tax money. For the next 60 years, Jim Crow rules kept pools segregated in both the North and the South. When the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 65 became law, whites continued to keep blacks out any way that they could. Pools which had once been public and therefore subject to the anti-segregation laws were suddenly made private. 
and laws allowed them to stay all white. Many whites moved to the suburbs to avoid the municipal pools, and they built private pools in their own backyards so they could control who came and went. But Philadelphia black folks always found a way to swim. Before the year 1900, blacks and whites in Atlantic City lived side by side, and African Americans from up and down the East Coast used the ocean beaches without restriction. But by 1900, hotel owners pushed black beachgoers from the fronts of their establishments down to the Missouri Avenue beach south of the Million Dollar Pier. This was done primarily to appease a growing number of hotel guests who came from the Jim Crow South. Soon, this strip of sand for black bathers was known as Chicken Bone Beach. The nickname derived from the tradition of the thousands of vacationing families who flocked to the shore, bringing beach balls, umbrellas, and blankets for oceanside fun and picnic baskets with fried chicken and other delights for seaside dining. When they finished eating, they buried the chicken bones in the sand. During this segregated era, the beach provided recreation and even stellar entertainment for African Americans, both tourists and residents. By the 1940s, black entrepreneurs were beginning to provide fun during the summer evenings. Black performers like Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Jordan, the Mills Brothers, Jackie Moms Mabley, and the Club Harlem Showgirls staged shows for the black beachgoers. The showgirls dubbed the beach Sunshine Row, and soon began attracting other visitors by alternately sunbathing and putting on brief skits. Visits from prominent figures like Sugar Ray Robinson added to Chicken Bone Beach's growing mystique. Despite the glitz of headline entertainers and showgirls, Chicken Bone Beach remained a family-oriented beach which served the needs of working-class Atlantic City. Family members, friends, and neighbors cared for all the children who spent their day at the beach while their parents worked in the tourist industry. With the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, all Atlantic City beaches were open to everyone, and this all-black beach disappeared. Today, the Chicken Bone Beach Historical Foundation promotes heritage pride through annual summer jazz concerts, including the Chicken Bone Beach Jazz on the Beach concert series that commemorates the era's earlier block party atmosphere. Now, we go inland to Philadelphia and its surrounding area. Yaden, Pennsylvania, is a borough of about 11,000 people. It's located in Delaware County at the edge of Philadelphia and on the banks of Cobbs Creek. It was founded in 1645 by Swedish immigrants. Blacks began moving to Yaden in the 1930s, and their numbers increased rapidly after World War II. The availability of mortgage loans helped make it one of the first suburbs in which blacks settled and were welcome. Black influx was gradual, block by block, with the first black settlers on the south side of Fairview Avenue shortly after the Depression. Many white businessmen had gone bust during the Depression and lost their mortgages, so few people could afford to buy the large colonial houses. Some of the homes on Fairview were abandoned and then vandalized. 
blacks started to move in after a group of real estate agents put the houses up for sale or rent to anyone with the money. A black Pullman porter and real estate speculator named Harvey M. Scott moved his family of four there from West Philadelphia in 1933. Reed's daughter, Eloise, was 19 at the time. She tells of how white salesmen would come to the house and mistake her or her brother for servants, and then were shocked to find out the madam of the house was a black woman. The new black residents fell in love with the nearby wooded area, where pheasants and rabbits could be hunted, and told their friends about the neighborhood. The next spot to sprout for sale signs was one block south of Fairview on Lincoln Avenue. The 1940 census showed there were 215 blacks among Yaden's 8,500 residents. Many owned land at a time when only 8,272 blacks in the entire northeastern United States owned property. By 1950, the black population had tripled to 647. A middle-class black enclave was building. Living within blocks of each other were Robert Bogle, vice president and treasurer of the Philadelphia Tribune, Tony Taylor, a former Philadelphia Philly, Leslie Pinckney Hill, president of Cheney State University from 1913 to 1951, plus physicians and lawyers and other white-collar workers, but there were also affluent blacks who made their livings as plumbers, electricians, and factory supervisors. In Yaden, almost all of them were able to live the American dream that their parents had raised them to expect. The whites who stayed lived for the most part on the other side of the main thoroughfare, Church Lane, which locals took to calling the Mason-Dixon line. But nobody from the black side of town wanted to move to the other side because they had the nicer houses. Black and white residents learned to work side by side with Yaden's school board, PTA, and library board. There was a garden club. The West Yaden Civic Association developed a surprising amount of political clout, but the municipal swimming pool was still off limits. In 1958, two black families applied to join the Yaden Swim Club and were met with a wall of silence. After filling out an application and leaving it for processing, one man left, only to realize he wanted to add one more reference to his application. When he returned to the office, the clerk fished his application out of the trash can where it had been tossed as soon as the applicant left. The black side of town realized it was time to show what they could do for themselves. They determined to build their own swim club financed with $30 bonds sold to local residents. And they chose a name that reflected their African roots, the Nile Swim Club. This was the first private black swim club in the eastern United States. On 11 July 1959, the club opened to the public with a full pool and a huge crowd. The Nile Swim Club soon gained national attention. Singer Harry Belafonte and later Motown superstars The Supremes performed at benefit concerts. There was a big write-up in Ebony magazine. From day one, it was available to anyone of any color who could pay the modest membership fee.
two of the original members of the swim club were Raphael and Julia E. Cole. Raphael McKinley Cole, known as Ray to family and friends, was born to McKinley and Joanna Cole in North Carolina in 1924. He attended school in Duplin and Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and then North Carolina Central in Durham, a historic black college founded in 1910. World War II interrupted his studies as he served with the then-segregated Army Air Corps in the South Pacific. After the war, he moved to West Philadelphia, where he worked nights at the post office at 30th and Market. During the day, he studied at the Kerpel School of Dental Technology, which had been founded in 1946 to help educate returning servicemen and women. Although Ray completed his degree, he worked only briefly as a dental technician. It was while he was employed by the post office that he met Julia Eccles, a Penn grad student who was working there over the Christmas holidays. Julia was raised in Baltimore, where she graduated from high school before majoring in education at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia, her father's alma mater. One day, she was standing near an elevator at the post office with a friend. They were watching the workers who necessarily got soiled working with the trucks and the bags and the dollies. She said, why are they all so dirty? Don't they have anyone clean around here? And at that moment, a man in a white shirt and tie walked by, and Julia's friend said, there's one. It was Raphael, who had a desk job. He chatted with Julia for several minutes. He was smitten, especially when he found they both had an interest in sports. Julia was an avid swimmer. She gave Raphael her phone number. They dated for a year. He even typed her master's thesis. In the spring of 1952, while they were lolling on the grass by the Schuylkill near Boathouse Row, Julia told Raphael she had been accepted for a State Department job in Europe. She showed him the form she was filling out to accept the job. Later, Raphael recalled, I took the papers and threw them in the Schuylkill River. I told her, I'm going to marry you. You're not going to get away from here. She could have gotten more papers, but she didn't, and we married in June 1952. Raphael and Julia were deeply involved in the civil rights movement during the 1960s. Raphael marched with Cecil B. Moore and other civil rights firebrands for the integration of Girard College. He was an organizer of Philadelphia's participation in the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. He became president of the West Philadelphia chapter of the NAACP. He was recipient of many honors from the NAACP, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Fair Housing Council. Raphael and Julia were childless for the first 10 years of their marriage and began to discuss adoption. But then Julia became pregnant, and their daughter, Crystal Ray Cowell, was born in 1963. Both Ray and Julia had grown up in segregated black neighborhoods. They wanted something different for their daughter. In 1968, before she started kindergarten, they made the decision to move from southwest Philadelphia to the suburbs. 
1950, Julia had starred in a film produced by Greater St. Matthew Independent Church, the Philadelphia Fellowship Commission, and Human Relations Commission, depicting a couple repeatedly turned down when they tried to buy a home in the white suburbs. The film mirrored what they would now experience in person. They took Sunday afternoon drives in a search for housing, and realtors offered them one excuse after another for not showing them houses that were listed for sale. Raphael became bitter, remembering how he served his country during the war. I could have lost my life for a country in which I am not truly free. Finally, they found an agent who took them to available houses that did not have for sale signs. They found a split level in Havertown, about nine miles west of the center of Philadelphia. It was less than two blocks from the public elementary school. It was near transportation and shopping. It was exactly what they wanted. In 1971, Ray joined the Prudential Life Insurance Company and rose quickly to district manager of the Fairmount office in Balakinwood, where he supervised more than 100 executive assistants, salespeople, managers, and agents. Julia taught health and physical education for 30 years in Philadelphia public schools. Crystal Ray grew up in Haverford Township. The family was an active member of the Nile Swim Club for many years, where Julia gave swimming lessons and Raphael sat on the board. Julia was the first black woman lifeguard hired by the Philadelphia Department of Recreation. She served as aquatic director of the Wissahickon Boys Club. Julia was only 52 when she was diagnosed with cancer in 1980. Her daughter was only a teenager. She resigned from the school district the next year, but lived for another 12 years, long enough to see Crystal Ray graduate from law school. Julia was an active member of the Greater St. Matthew Independent Church, where she served eight years as president of the Malin M. Lewis Guild and helped establish a college scholarship program for the church community. And she remained a licensed swimming instructor by the states of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Among the awards and citations she received over the years were Greater Philadelphia Press Women's Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Civil and Social Life of the Community, Distinguished Service Award, NAACP, Century Club Award, NAACP, for signing up 185 new members during membership drives, and the Miss Ebony Award, presented by the Greater St. Matthew Independent Church for being its leading fundraiser in its Ebony subscription campaign, for which a story and a picture were published in Jet Magazine. She died in 1993. She was interred at Laurel Hill West in Balakinwood. Raphael outlived Julia by 16 years. He spent his life trying to make things better for others. He served many roles in both the community and the church, where he served as an usher, a steward, and a trustee who created investments that brought in more than $1 million for the church. He was a big letter writer. I found several of his letters to the editor dating back to 1965 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. In 1982, he wrote a letter to his teenage daughter that she treasures to this day. 
Step into the future eagerly, always remembering that what you have on the inside is what really counts. Nurture the special person that is you and sparkle today, tomorrow, and forever. Raphael McKinley Coles died in 2009. He was 85 years old. Raphael and Julia lay in rest together at Laurel Hill West in the Garden of Memories section, plot 380. They have a simple ground-level bronze plaque not far from the Belmont Avenue entrance. Now, for many years, there was a stereotype that blacks don't know how to swim, and it was true. But the reason was simply that blacks and other ethnic minorities were kept away from the methods of learning how to swim. Despite improved opportunities, the disparity in deaths by drowning remains a large public health problem. You'll hear numbers bandied about that black teens are anywhere from three to six times more likely to drown than white teens. The 18 June 2021 edition of the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, which is available for free on the Internet, gives the most recent statistics. It's an article entitled Persistent Racial-Ethnic Disparities in Fatal Unintentional Drowning Rates Among Persons Aged Less Than or Equal to 29 Years, United States, 1899 to 2019. During this 11-year period, a total of 81,947 unintentional drowning deaths occurred in the United States. This made it one of the three leading causes of unintentional injury death among persons aged 29 or less. Drowning results in more deaths among children 1 to 4 years than any other cause except birth defects. Now, overall, drowning death rates have fallen since 1990. They've declined by 57% worldwide and by 32% in the United States. However, because of ethnic disparities in drowning risk, rates remain high among American Indian or Alaska Native and Black or African American persons. The drowning death rate among all persons less than or equal to 29 years is 1.3 per 100,000 population. Among white people, it's 1.2 per 100,000. Among American Indians, it was twice as high, 2.5 per 100,000. And black persons' drowning rate was 1.5 times higher than the whites at 1.8 per 100,000. And the disparity in rates among black persons compared with white persons increased significantly from 2005 to 2019. Drowning is preventable. We need more prevention efforts to reduce the ethnic disparities in drowning deaths that persist. Developing, implementing, evaluating community-based interventions to promote drowning prevention strategies can help. Things like installing barriers, teaching basic swimming and water safety skills, using life jackets properly, providing active supervision, and knowing and performing CPR. Although the practicality of prevention strategies varies by setting, having basic swimming and water safety skills is applicable in all settings. 
engaging populations at the highest risk of drowning to address the barriers to accessing basic swimming and water safety skills training is still needed. From March through September of last year, 2022, there was a free exhibit at the Fairmount Waterworks called Pool, A Social History of Integration. The 4,700 square foot exhibit investigated the nation's handling of segregation as it related to swimming pools. The website still exists. It's www.poolphl.com. And they have hours and hours of interviews with black swimming pioneers. I also found a very informative podcast series on black swimming. It's called Crossing the Lane Lines. And it includes a wonderful episode called the Nile Swim Club, the oldest and only black-owned pool. And what about the old wives' tale that blacks don't know how to swim? Well... Anyone who watches swimming competition on television knows this is definitely not the case. Cullen Jones, born on Leap Day of 1984, may be the most famous black male swimmer. After a near-drowning incident at Dorney Park in Wildwater Kingdom when he was five years old, he learned to swim, and he never looked back. He swam and dived all through college and was good enough to make the U.S. Olympic team. At the 2008 United States Olympic Trials, Jones broke the American record in the 50-meter freestyle. And at the 2008 Games in Beijing, he won a gold medal in the 4x100-meter freestyle relay in world record time with his teammates Michael Phelps, Jason Lezak, and Garrett Weber Gale. And then there's Simone Manuel, the first African-American woman to win an individual Olympic gold in swimming and set an Olympic record and an American record. At the 2016 Games in Rio, she won two gold and two silver medals. And at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, she won a bronze medal as the anchor of the American 4x100-meter freestyle relay team. Other black swimmers include NCAA champion Dax Hill, swimming brothers Brett and Sean Fraser, who represented their native Cayman Islands in the Olympics, African Olympians Jackson Neo Mugabo from Rwanda, Adama Widraogo from Burkina Faso, Rone Bakale from Congo, Christian Nisif from the Central African Republic, Ganzi Mugula from Uganda, Abdurrahman Osman from Djibouti, and many others. After many years of financial peril, the Nile Swim Club now thrives with anywhere from 700 to 1,000 members annually. About 30% are non-black. The club also has basketball courts, tennis courts, a snack bar, pretty much all the amenities you want for a place to go in the summertime and relax and swim and soak up some sun and maybe eat an ice cream bar. You can read all about them at their website, www.nileswimclub.org. I have a final anecdote for you on shared swimming pools. May 1969, Fred Rogers, host of the popular children's show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, aired a scene that confronted the issue of black and white Americans sharing a pool. 
Mr. Rogers is sitting in his yard, soaking his feet in a small inflatable wading pool on what is purportedly a hot summer day. Officer Clemens, played for many years by black actor Francois Clemens, stops by, and Mr. Rogers invites him to put his feet in the pool with him and cool off. Clemens protests that he doesn't have a towel, so Fred Rogers said, well, you could use mine. The two men then sit and chat by the pool as they cool their feet together. At the end of the scene, Officer Clemens dries his feet before putting his shoes and socks back on. After Clemens leaves, Rogers uses the same towel to dry his feet. The scene was an eye-opener for many people. Many watchers interpreted it as a critique of the separation of blacks and whites at pools. Perhaps Mr. Rogers' simple gesture moved things forward just a tiny bit. going on at the cemetery. Lots of stuff, actually. Um, If you download this on the day it's released, February 15th, real quick, you can go to the website, laurelhillphl.com, and get pay-what-you-wish ticket for a virtual hotspots and storied plots tour that is scheduled for 6.30 this evening. If you can't catch it live, Just sign up for it, and then you'll get a link when it becomes available in a couple of days. There's an online lecture with ecologist and birder Mike McGraw called For the Birds, Philadelphia Ecosystems. That is Thursday, February 16th, from 6.30 until 8 p.m. And then a live event, the Great Backyard Bird Count, on February 18th from 9 a.m. until 11. There is a Valentine's Day theme tour coming up on Saturday, February 18th. I highly recommend All Thorns, No Roses, Love Gone Wrong at Laurel Hill West. Sarah Hamill tells some of the best stories of misguided love that you've ever heard in your life. I think it is definitely worth your time to come on that tour. On February 23rd, Marion Stokes, Community Media and Writing History. I did a podcast about Marion Stokes last year. I think it was February episode of uh, All Bones Considered for Black History Month. She is the woman who started recording all the news on television and did so for many years. When she died, there were more than 70,000 videotapes that her son donated to archive.com. 
and they are in the process of transcribing them. But there is a discussion of Marion Stokes, along with people from WPPM, People Powered Media, Philly Cam, who are the community radio people for this area. I do a radio show with them every Tuesday afternoon from 2 until 4 on phillycam.org slash listen. What other tours? Oh, that's a virtual get-together, by the way. Um, We'd like you to sign up for it. It's another pay-what-you-wish. There's a Hot Spots tour on Friday, February 24th from 10 until noon. That's at Laurel Hill East. There's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places at Laurel Hill West the next day, Saturday, February 25th from 10 until 11.30. And finishing out February on Sunday the 26th, Black Trailblazers of Laurel Hill West. Again, that's with Sarah Hamill as your tour guide. That is another tour that I've been on a couple of times. It's really good. Every every year I learn something new. What about March? The Beauties and Benefits of Green Burial. That's Thursday, March 2nd, 6.30 p.m., a free online presentation about natural burials. There's a Hot Spots tour on Saturday, March 11th at Laurel Hill East from 10 until noon. Let's see who's giving that one. Guinevere. Guinevere and I trained together. We became guides together. She gives really fun tours also. I may have to go see what she's talking about this year. There's a Death Cafe on March 14th from 6.30 until 8 o'clock. That's virtual. I'll go on into March a little more. The St. Patrick's Day Tour and Tastes on March 18th from 1 until 3 p.m. at Laurel Hill East for a St. Patrick's Day Tour. At least one of the tour guides will have a thick Irish brogue. Theme Tour, a new one. Wondrous Women of Laurel Hill West on Sunday, March 19th from 10 a.m. until 11.30. Jen Kravinskis is the guide on that, and I'm anxious to hear what she has to say. This is a new tour this year. There is a Behind the Shroud session on Wednesday, March 22nd, an open house at Laurel Hill West where you can look around, see what the location is like. And then, standard tours, Hot Spots and Storied Plots on March 24th from 10 until noon at Laurel Hill East. Jackie Mann is the host of that tour. And then there's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places on Saturday, March 25th from 10 a.m. until 11.30. And Pat Rose will be your guide for that one. And then there's a theme tour, Daring Dames of Laurel Hill East, a Women's History Month tour. Sunday, March 26th, Colleen Hudson is giving that one. That's from 1 until 3 p.m. The weather should be warming up nicely about then. Then there's, this is something new. It's called Flowers for the Philly Sound. It's scheduled for Sunday, March 26th, 4 p.m., 6 p.m. celebrating the sound of Laurel Hill West. Who is doing this? I can't tell from the web page, but we've got a lot, a lot of really important musical people buried at Laurel Hill West. Billy Paul, Teddy Pendergrass, Grover Washington Jr., disc jockeys, Jocko Henderson, High Lit. We've got 
the guy who wrote Away in a Manger. We've got the guy who wrote Ten Little Indians and listened to The Mockingbird. So lots of good musical stuff. I have no idea what people are going to talk about at this get-together, but this is live in the conservatory at Laurel Hill West on March 26th. Sounds like something you should be there for. And finally for March, Boneyard Bookworms March Book Club. Virtual Thursday, March 30th from 6 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. If you need more information on that, go to the website laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. And that will tell you everything you need to know about the things I've been talking about for the last few minutes. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex. I'm a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, volunteer podcaster. You can get in touch with me, joe at joelex.net. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrow. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography is up next. As far as bibliography, most of the information came from newspaper articles over the last 50 or 60 years. I mentioned the website for Pool, PHL, that had some good information also. Uh, some articles that I use, Swimming Against Segregation, The Struggle to Desegregate. That's out of Pennsylvania Legacies, Volume 10, Number 2, November 2010, pages 12 through 17. That covered mostly desegregation of pools in Pittsburgh. It really didn't tell you that much about Philadelphia, but it did set up the general feeling for the for what was going on in that time. There's an article called Our Color Won't Wash Off, The Desegregation of Swimming in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, by Allison M. Allison Kibler and Shanna Davidovitz. That's from the Journal of Civil and Human Rights, Volume 2, Number 1, Spring-Summer 2016, pages 3 through 32. It's published by the University of Illinois Press. Drowning in Inequalities, Swimming and Social Justice, Authors Donald W. Hastings, Sami Zahran, Z-A-H-R-A-N, and Sherry Cable. That was from the Journal of Black Studies, July 2006, volume 36, number 6, pages 894 to 907. And an article called Police Black Community Relations in Post-War Philadelphia. Race and Criminalization in Urban Social Spaces, 1945 to 1960. That's by Carl with a K. E. Johnson, The Journal of African American History, Volume 89, Number 2, African Americans and the Urban Landscape, pages 118 to 134. And finally, a big, big thank you to Crystal Ray Cole, Esquire, M.A., Um, When I saw that she was born in 1963, I took a chance. I saw that she went to law school, and sure enough, she is the Assistant Dean for Student Affairs and Diversity at University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. She graciously took the script, made a couple of suggestions, corrected one or two minor things that I had wrong, and it was just a delight to work with her. 
She is the daughter of Raphael and Julia. Okay, thanks for listening. Hope to see you out at the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.